This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi there. Oh no, please. Please don't run away. I promise I'm nearly finished with Versailles. I promise even though this episode is super, super long, you actually will enjoy it if you're interested in this era. Seriously, I know we're 84 episodes in, and you may be wondering whether the end is in fact in sight. Am I going to go all the way up to 1939? Sure. No, of course I'm not. I'm not going to do that. We are nearly at the end of this monster. After all the time we've spent with our main protagonists, though, I felt it would be wrong to just leave them as they are. So I'm going to give them their proper swan song, their proper send-off in this episode. The reason why I'm able to send you such enormous episodes like these is because you guys support this podcast so wonderfully well on Patreon. So if you'd like to go and do that, if you would like to support this show and get some pretty sweet rewards in return, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash blah 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 when diplomacy fails. You know the story by now. What you probably don't know, or what you may not be aware of, is that I'm starting a PhD in September. Which means that, if you're very sick of my voice, don't worry. Because we'll be entering a more kind of regular, normal schedule from September. 30 Years War will be starting up, and we'll also be starting up something called Poland Is Not Yet Lost. I'm really looking forward to this change of pace. I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit exhausted with this whole era. But we are nearly reached the end here. And I am happy with how this whole thing went. I hope you've enjoyed this project as well. And I hope that in the future, more history friends will find this, maybe when it's a few years old or a few weeks old or whatever, and they'll be able to enjoy it without having to follow it day after day. Take it at their own pace and not freak out because there's just so much content being released and they can't even keep up with it. In any case, thanks for joining us here. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, I mean, I'd say it's kind of crazy. You won't know what's going on. But then again, maybe you like these concluding episodes and it's a nice way to wrap things up. If that's the case, thanks for joining us and I hope you enjoy what you listen to here. I've also been told that that intelligence speech conference, which I've been promoting the last few episodes, I've been told that went really, really well and that you guys enjoyed meeting Mike Duncan and David Crowther and Kevin Stroud. It is to my immense surprise that some rupture in the space-time history podcasting continuum didn't occur when those three giants met together in the same room. But hey, perhaps in the future, there'll be chance for that to happen again. Because by the looks of things, perhaps November is going to be the next opportunity for the Intelligent Speech Conference to take place. And 
and history friends, this is where it gets really exciting for those of you on the other side of the Atlantic. It's going to take place in London. Now, this is all maybe. I probably shouldn't be telling you this. But if you are interested in this kind of thing, then great. Keep your calendars free for the whole month of November because you never know what might happen. I'm just kidding. I'll give you more details closer to the time. But for now, this is a very exciting step towards bringing history podcasting to as many people as possible. And it also means that because you guys are so enthusiastic, because you are such great fans of shows like When Diplomacy Fails, but also all the other shows in the Agora Podcast Network, we're able to put our projects, put our babies out there for you to enjoy. And I should emphasize, we really do enjoy meeting you face to face. If you're listening to this now and you're thinking, Zach Twomley's a podcasting superstar, he doesn't have any time for me, he's far too busy drinking his coffee, eating his chocolate buttons, making weird podcasting games, saying thanks far too much. All of that is true, but I also really enjoy meeting you guys face to face. There's something really that it's just nothing like meeting people who've been listening to me for years and who come all this way just to meet me. And of course, to meet my fellow history podcasting peers. But let's not get too involved with all of that. We got a rather large episode still to cover. And yes, Looking at this script in front of me now, oh boy, it's 32 pages long. Kind of on the hungry side, not sure if I'll make it to the end, but that's what this has all been about for the Versailles Anniversary Project. It's been a bit of a marathon at times, but it's been something that has been immensely rewarding and that I've really enjoyed doing. We will have a break halfway through this, just so that you can find your place again. So if you want to come back to this in the future, if listening to it all in one go is too much, then that's fine. Otherwise, thanks so much for making deep dives like these possible, and I'll see you all on the other side. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 84. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our penultimate episode on the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 84. Last time we examined the minor powers, mostly in the East, who were concerned with wrapping up matters in their respective theatres and getting the best deal they could from the peacemakers before they all went home. In this episode, we provide what is in many respects the final word on the peacemakers, men we've had by our side for over six months of storyline and hundreds of thousands of words. The Big Four, often just the Big Three, were the glue that held the peace conference together, and for better or worse, it was their personalities, their triumphs, their strengths, and their weaknesses which shaped the final peace settlement. Because the Treaty of Versailles isn't just a 200-page document consisting of 440 articles, it is also a testament to the fears, ambitions, victories and defeats of the Big Four. In this episode, we allow them to exit the stage of the peace conference, to withdraw into a less exciting and less glamorous mission, because the treaty had been made, and now it remained to defend it. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you all to the final days of June, 
1919. Surprisingly, perhaps, our examination begins with Italy. You may remember that in the beginning of this project, I scorned the idea of focusing on Vittorio Orlando, or as considering him a member of the Major Power Club, because I said, no offence to Orlando, but the man did not have the weight to get the job done. In a sense, this still rings true, but as his counterparts learned during the course of the peace conference, Italy was more than willing and was sometimes capable of punching above its weight. Much of the credit for this has to go to the person of Orlando himself, who we know less about in the narrative than his big four counterparts, largely because I refrained from engaging in an examination of the man in the profile episodes which I devoted to Wilson, Clemenceau or Lloyd George. Italy's status now and then remains a weird one, with one toe in the big power camp and a whole leg out of it. So Italy's experience and the work which her statesmen accomplished tended to rub everyone the wrong way by the tail end of the conference, mostly because her statesmen's goals seemed so problematic. It is hard to deny that Italy got shafted at the peace conference, though, much like the Germans were to have their high hopes dashed when the peace treaty was handed over, Vittorio Orlando never seemed satisfied with the hand that the big three dealt to him, and he never ceased to make it plain that he wasn't asking for very much, just the realisation of the promises made to him in 1915 and 1917, with the two treaties that sought to bind Italy closer to the Allied cause during difficult times. Inevitably, the glue for this binding consisted of problems that do not age well. Territory or spheres of influence in places like Asia Minor or Africa or Europe, basically places where Italian flags had generally no interest in flying. Something which we've surely learned by now, though, is that these ugly deals were no uglier than those which the Big Three had also made amongst themselves. Italy, it seemed, was held up to be ridiculed by the Big Three for seeking such compensation for her war effort, when David Lloyd George was more than happy to swoop up German colonies and Clemenceau was content to occupy the Rhineland. Self-determination, Woodrow Wilson in particular loudly proclaimed, would be violated should Italy have its way in Fiume, the modern-day city of Riaca in Croatia. Today, there is little on the ground in Riaca to indicate its role in souring the relationship between Italy and her former allies. Riaca remains the third largest city in Croatia, behind only Split and Zagreb and contains typically beautiful sites, which my Croatian listeners will certainly note, exist nowhere else in the world. Perhaps you Croatian listeners have a point, because Italian statesmen never fought harder or more tenaciously, and never sacrificed more than when they fought for this city in 1919. Even after the peace conference, the vitriol which had been poured out in Fiume's name was such that a contemporary wrote for the North American Review in November 1919, There was a time when our impulse was to cry out, Let us have done with Fiume. The Conference of Paris has greater questions to decide. Yet there are no more troublesome questions tormenting the world today than those involved in the disposition of Fiume. The clashing of national aspirations with commercial interests, of a political ideal with a racial conviction, the measuring of a spontaneous popular will against the decrees of governments, of the ambitions of one people against the traditions of another, the Slavs against the Latin, the East against the West, These are the phases of the conflict which is made of the little seaport of 50,000 souls, a battlefield in the war for peace. We cannot escape from the international significance of Fiume. 
The lack of appreciation for Italy compelled Orlando to walk out of the conference in the last week of April, as much because he was dissatisfied with his lot as because he felt that his presence was needed in Rome. Indeed, the latter perspective was how Silvio Crespi, Italy's expert on economic matters, and the man whom Orlando left in charge of the Italian fort while he was gone, presented the matter. Crespi himself saw the view that the Italians were not withdrawing from the conference, but were merely going home to secure a confirmation of their mandate. This was what the Italian historian René Albrecht Carri wrote, adding that, Since the authority of the delegation had been brought into question by Wilson, they would not participate in the work of the conference, pending the outcome of this consultation. On the other hand, as this outcome was not in doubt, they would be able to return in a few days, strengthened by a fresh manifestation of home support. Comforted by this optimistic interpretation, Crespi settled down to hold the fort, with the assistance of the Italian ambassadors to Paris, London and Washington. He believed that their activity would be limited, in the main, to watching the situation in Paris and reporting on it to Orlando and Sanino in Rome. Orlando's major problem was that the stance of the Big Three regarding Fiume and other promises had been laid out in the so-called Balfour Note of the 24th of April, which amounted to a declaration to the effect that the Treaty of London could not presently be honoured. Orlando solved this problem by ignoring this Balfour Note, when before the Parliament in Rome on the 29th of April, Orlando claimed that a rift existed between the Anglo-French and the American president, which Italy would exploit. To his Italian audiences, this sounded like the plan of an Italian Bismarck, determined to wrest the best concessions from their allies that could be gained. No wonder they approved heartily of Orlando's continued leadership. When asked by Crespi why he refrained from confessing to the actual truth of the matter, Orlando simply claimed that it was up to him whether he made use of this information, in other words, the Balfour note, and he rolled out the old chestnut that he had not lied, he had merely omitted the truth. When Orlando did not return to Paris the day after having his mandate affirmed by Rome, Crespi and his colleagues in Paris started to suspect that Orlando had been motivated by the potential gains he might acquire by waiting for the Big Three to give him some inducement to return. Crespi maintained that if Orlando had quickly returned to Paris on the 30th of April, with the narrative that the mandate was approved and he was here to pick up negotiations where he had left off, his image would not have suffered. However, once Orlando determined to remain in Rome and wait for carrots, Crespi began to feel the pressure from his colleagues and from the Big Three. News of an Anglo-French recognition of Yugoslavia, or of approval for some Greek venture, all made Crespi nervous and the pressure would eventually prove too much for Orlando to ignore. Traditional narratives have the Big Three carry on gleefully without Italy, having barely noticed her absence and making good progress with the German treaty because of it. As we have gathered though, this narrative is flawed, because with Italy gone, the Big Three seem to have a new obsession with her, just at the wrong time, when a flurry of activity in late April and early May moved them to spend hours and several meetings imagining where Italy would go next. In fact, it served as a major impetus behind the Allied approval for the Greek landing at Smyrna too, a fact which is often obscured in the haze and smoke put up by Venizelos' Greek dreams. The important fact is that this was not deliberate on Orlando's part. He had never worked to undermine the Allied relationship, nor had he tried to use his exit from Paris as a means to ominously threaten the Big Three from afar. It is difficult, in fact, to ascertain what, if anything, Orlando personally gained from the walkout, 
save for a soured relationship with his old friends and the empowering of Sidney Sonino, the Italian terrier determined to yap his way into the Big Three's bad books, so it seemed. On paper, though, Orlando could at least claim that Italy's parliament had affirmed its faith in him to deliver, though this faith was conditional, as Orlando well knew, and depended upon him delivering soon and with gusto. Under a cloud of ignominy, Orlando returned in the morning of the 7th of May, just in time to watch the German delegate Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau receive his least favourite document in the world. Thanks to the gravity at the moment, Italy's return was mostly glossed over, with onlookers far too busy commenting on the German behaviour to really make much of the Italian. But the rot had set in among the big four, and the British in particular seemed to have lost a great deal of patience with the Italian Premier. This was because the Italian return had not occasioned any change in Orlando's personality or his goals. He still clung to the goal of acquiring Fiume for Italy, and he remained transfixed on achieving either that goal or of enforcing the terms of the Treaty of London, which had already caused a notable rift among the Big Three, due to Wilson's refusal to recognise the Treaty of London or any of its terms. Wilson, as we have seen, can be easily criticised for acting unfairly in regard to Italy, and leaving one rule for them and one rule for the others, but in the President's mind, he was doing his best to maintain consistency. The surprising overlap between the issues of the Rhineland, Danzig and Fiume, we learned, were set in place to give Wilson a position to negotiate from. This has to be prefaced with the fact that it wasn't an especially effective strategy, because it assumed that Orlando would give up when confronted with the hopelessness of his mission, and Orlando had never done this before. However, for establishing some kind of precedent for dealing with contentious regions or cities, of which there were many of course, Wilson believed that by treating the bones of contention for France, Poland and Italy similarly, Orlando would be more willing to accept decisions which were made. It was hardly an easy task accommodating these powers, but France was placated with its 15-year occupation on a joint governing commission. Poland was disappointed, but would fall in line on the notion of Danzig as a free city under league control, and Orlando did relent in time, as Fiume was imagined as a free city under the control of a multinational commission too. What ties those three issues together isn't merely the underlying principles which Wilson believed he was staying true to, though. They also served as touchstones in their own right. The Rhineland served as Nazi Germany's first foray into the world stage in 1936, when the region was reoccupied and remilitarized. Danzig infamously served as Hitler's bridge too far three years later, and in 1924, to take it back a bit, when Wilson was on death's door, Fiume served as the most significant first casualty of the peacemakers' decisions, as the city-state was annexed into Mussolini's Italy, following some negotiations with the Yugoslav government. Ironically, after so many weeks of proclaiming his inability to work with those Yugoslavs and doing his best, so he said, to prevent any violent outbursts from breaking out in the city, it was through peaceful negotiations with that foe that Orlando's infamous successor managed to achieve his coup. This act, coming at the same time as the French government fortified their occupation of the Ruhr, served as grim reminders for the ailing Wilson that his vision for the final settlement had been fatally undermined but it cannot be denied at the same time that in 1919, Orlando did try his best to satisfy his allies and his people. 
It is often noted that Clemenceau suffered from the ideological shift occasioned by Wilson's intervention, whereby suddenly the old ideas like spheres of influence, military power, mutual defence and mutual aggression have been declared obsolete, replaced by newfangled concepts like the League of Nations, collective security, disarmament, self-determination and liberal peace treaties. Clemenceau, indeed, chafed under this changing perspective in the order of things, but Orlando certainly suffered worse. Having been promised the Tyrol, spheres of influence in Asia Minor, Africa and Europe, islands in the Adriatic and much more besides, Orlando arrived at Paris to discover that these goals which Italy had fought for and which had so animated her people had been proclaimed obsolete. What was more, these ideas were reprehensible, according to the American president, because they had played no small role in provoking the conflagration in the first place. What was more, whereas Clemenceau was at least satiated with a promise to continue the wartime alliance, and an arrangement whereby the Rhineland would be occupied for a 15-year period, Orlando received next to no concessions. What was worse, those concessions he did receive appeared to contradict Wilson's declared principles. Why, for example, should Italy acquire the multi-ethnic Tyrol region, but not the pro-Italian city of Fiume? That question should not lead us to believe that Italian claims on Fiume were wholly justified, though. According to a 1910 census of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, only 25,000 ethnic Italians lived in the city of Fiume, and the annexation plans which Rome advocated would bring nearly 800,000 Yugoslavs into the Italian fold. Where ethnic arguments failed then, Orlando turned to the economic or strategic arguments for Fiume, as did the proponents of giving Fiume to Yugoslavia. What galled Orlando was not necessarily the fact that Wilson failed to see things his way, but that the American president behaved so inconsistently and hypocritically in his approach to the Fiume question. The whole question resolved itself into this proclaimed Wilson in a meeting of the Council of Four on the 19th of April. We were trying to make peace on an entirely new basis and to establish a new order of international relations. Nobody of statesmen had ever before undertaken to make such a settlement. There was a certain class of argument which must be brushed aside, namely the economic and strategic argument. From this, it sounded like Wilson was scorning the economic and strategic arguments. And yet, for strategic reasons, Wilson insisted, Italy would acquire the Brenner Pass in the Tyrol and would be given the ethnic Greek island of Lissa in the Aegean. The whole thing just didn't add up. One historian who discerned what was up was Sterling J. Koenig, writing for the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society in 1982. Koenig's article in this case was given the suggestive title Woodrow Wilson and National Self-Determination Along Italy's Frontier, a study of the manipulation of principles and the pursuit of political interests, and this article detailed the series of compromises which the President made on his principles to satisfy alternative goals, such as the League, protecting American interests in the Adriatic, and propping up the new Yugoslav state. Koenig's article amounts to an attack upon Wilson's position generally, but the commentary on Italian qualms are particularly useful to us here, as Koenig wrote. One of Wilson's major problems in posing as a moral leader was that he had compromised his principles many times by April 1919. The Italian leaders sensed his vulnerability to charges of inconsistency and they themselves sincerely felt that they were being treated unfairly. Sonino complained that President Wilson 
after having forgotten and violated many times his 14 points, wants to restore their virginity by enforcing rigorously those which apply to Italy. The Italians frequently argued that even if their claims were granted, Italy would contain a smaller proportion of ethnic minorities than other countries. The frustrations at these inconsistencies spilled out on occasion into Orlando's language too, on that aforementioned day of the 19th of April, when a great deal seemed to kick off for Italy in the Council of Four, Orlando engaged in an exercise of comparison to demonstrate Italy's claims to justice, even if some non-Italians would be caught up in her triumphs. Orlando said, Poland, with 25 million inhabitants, will have between 1.8 million and 2 million Germans. Italy, with all claims, will have about 600,000 aliens and a population of 40 million. Romania will have a very large number of Hungarians. Of Serbia, there is no need to speak. The Czechs are annexing 2 to 3 million aliens, Hungarians and Germans, in a population of some 10 million. If there had been merely 400 or 500,000 Germans between France and the Rhine, that fact would not have been a sufficient reason for not making that great river the frontier of France. They also formed a significant plank of the anxiety which moved Orlando to declare on several occasions that the Italian people would revolt, or replace him, or both. Bolshevism was the bugbear which was regularly alluded to, as Orlando perhaps could not have imagined any alternative. This alternative would shortly present itself though, thanks to the growing disaffection of the Italian people towards their democratically elected leadership, and the hunger Italians had for figures who could get the job done. One is struck by how curiously history develops in this case. It is often forgotten, for instance, or not known at all, that Anglo-French money was used to spur pro-war demonstrators to action in the streets of Rome in 1915. Among those pro-war demonstrators was a young Benito Mussolini, accompanied by the poet and fierce nationalist Gabriele D'Annunzio, the latter of whom would shortly erect a pro-Italian dictatorship in Fiume. D'Annunzio, considered the father of fascism by many, had a profound influence upon the behaviour and style of Mussolini before the two entered into competition in the 1920s. After seizing Fiume in a coup in September 1919, D'Annunzio found that he and his supporters were not to enjoy the thanks of Rome, as Italian vessels actually blockaded his regime. Shortly thereafter then, D'Annunzio reimagined his regime as what he called the Regency of Carnaro, and styled it as the centre of international revolution on the right wing. D'Annunzio then sponsored a strikingly active foreign policy, reaching out to other disaffected peoples who had lost out in the war. Such as the charisma of D'Annunzio and the attraction of his message, that in a strange episode the rebellious Irish Republic even had its envoy Sean T. O'Kelly negotiate to acquire arms from his regime, though the deal eventually fell through. D'Annunzio's regime was not to last, but Mussolini's march on Rome in October 1922 ensured that Italy was destined to suffer an even worse fate than that city-state. All the while, during the country's journey from success to disaster, the mutilated victory, the refusal to honour the Treaty of London, and the countless other slights played upon Italian sentiment. Right up to the moment of the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, René Albrecht Carey was able to comment on that treaty's unfulfilled ghosts. It was imperative, thought Mussolini then, that Italians never be forced to rely on her allies to such an extent ever again. 
In the last analysis, it is impossible for one to deny that Italy's failure at the peace conference had as much to do with Orlando's relative weakness as it did with the Allies' willingness to throw her under the bus when it suited them. On the one hand, it would be loudly proclaimed that Italian territorial claims could not be honoured, as it would compromise new principles like self-determination. On the other, though, these new principles were cast aside when it suited the Big Three, and the Treaty of London was never fully honoured. This experience of seeing her allies abandon her, and betray her, some Italians might say, moved the Italian people to engage in one terrible error in judgement after another in the years that followed. It is significant as well that on the same day that the Treaty of Versailles was presented to Germany to sign, on the 28th of June, the final touches were placed upon a note to be presented to the new Italian ministry. This note clarified the Allied position, and it made it abundantly clear that this new Italian ministry would find it just as impossible to force the Big Three to budge over Fiume or anything else. It also amounted to something of a threat, that Italy must live up to her commitment to the Entente, or she would suffer the consequences. As a matter of fact, she was to do both. Italy's new ministry accepted the ultimatum begrudgingly, and subsequently entered better terms with her European allies, while the United States began its withdrawal process. On the other hand, this acceptance of her allies' position meant disaster at home, as discontent spread in the following years, leading to that infamous scene where Mussolini was handed the reins of government by the king. Uniquely among the big four, Orlando did not simply retire into the background after the peace conference. He actually returned to politics after the Second World War, dying an honoured elder statesman in 1952, living to the ripe age of 92. By then, his failures during the conference were a distant memory, but it is impossible to forget the impact which this accomplished Sicilian lawyer had upon the peace conference, as US Secretary of State at the time, Robert Lansing, provides us with an effective analysis of Orlando's character. Writing, Though Signor Orlando possessed admirable traits of character and exhibited a skill in debate which none of his confreres excelled, he was nevertheless the least influential of the Big Four and had the least to do with formulating the terms of peace with Germany. This was doubtless due in large measure to the relative military, naval and financial strength of the great powers represented in the Council of Four. Comparison by this standard, which, it is to be regretted, was the principal standard in weighing influence at the peace conference, tended to place Italy in the background and to subordinate the views of her statesmen. I know also that some felt that the Italian government had driven too sharp a bargain with the Entente in 1915 and was now demanding more than its pound of flesh, in spite of the small part, which the more critical in Europe asserted, that Italy had taken in the later months of the struggle. There seemed to be a disposition to repudiate the Italian claims, or at least to reject many of them. It was with evident reluctance that France and Britain conceded their treaty of obligations. Neither of them vigorously supported Italy when her claims were urged. The attitude seemed to be that of tolerance for a nation which had not won by arms a right to a voice in the decisions, but was, by agreement instead, entitled to it. It was therefore especially fortunate for the Italian people that they had in Signor Orlando so well-trained a statesman, so talented an advocate, and so keen a logician to represent them at the conference. He could not be and was not ignored. Another representative less able might have been. Indeed, it should be added to Lansing's point here that I have only felt compelled to speak more about Orlando because of the increasing activity and importance of his delegation in May and June. 
it is also impossible to get a feel for the Allied mood at the conference without examining how the Italians were viewed in Allied circles, above all in the French and British circles. It was the British Prime Minister who seemed most impatient with Orlando in private, but it was Clemenceau who was more willing to confront Orlando than any of his Allied counterparts. In response to this, as Lansing concludes, Orlando was more than capable of meeting the Tiger's challenge. Orlando seemed to know his case more thoroughly and to represent it more convincingly than did his French adversary. In fact, if the latter had not been the great personality that he was, Clemenceau would often have been forced to acknowledge defeat, but he never did. Clemenceau defeated was unthinkable to Clemenceau, and that attitude had unquestionably a potent influence on his associates. As a consequence, Signor Orlando did not triumph as frequently as he otherwise might have done in his word combats with the fierce old champion of France, who treated him, I believe, intentionally, with far less consideration than he did Mr. Wilson and Mr. Lloyd George. Indeed, Clemenceau defeated was unthinkable to Clemenceau, but Orlando was by no means the only formidable challenge which the French Premier would have to parry and balance. The Tiger was constantly on guard, as we have seen, against the British, but above all against the Americans, finding some way to undermine those promises which Clemenceau had made to himself and the French people regarding the post-war settlement. Considering how entangled the conference became with the Italian question, the Japanese Shantung Furor, and of course, the settlement of the treaty itself, it can be somewhat easy to forget that in spring, during the initial months of the conference, it was the French who were at loggerheads with their allies to the greatest extent. Where Orlando walked out of the conference, Clemenceau famously walked out of a meeting in late March and criticised Wilson of being pro-German as he did so. The accusation was especially biting for Wilson, who was at that point attempting to square his desire to achieve some satisfaction for France, while also working to maintain his commitment to self-determination in sensitive issues like the Rhineland. And it was the Rhineland above all, not only, where Clemenceau found that Lloyd George and Wilson were against him. When Wilson had returned on the 14th of March to the conference, he found Clemenceau ready with a proposal for a continuation of the wartime alliance. The deliberations over this proposal took up some time, but Wilson was clearly hesitant for what this alliance might do to American liberty in negotiations. Wilson was also high-mindedly expecting that alliances such as that which had brought the Allies to victory in war would not be necessary during peacetime. Rather than a triple alliance of sorts, the three Allies should work together towards bolstering the League of Nations and should make that the core of their security. As Clemenceau had expressed on several occasions though, the League was a noble idea, too young and untested to be trusted so completely to secure France. Clemenceau's lack of enthusiasm for the League is shown in his decision to appoint Léon Bourgeois as his representative on the League Commission, but earlier expressions to the French Chamber in December 1918 also demonstrated the French Premier's preference for the traditional means of security. As we have learned, Clemenceau was right to be pessimistic about the likelihood of a reinvention of the diplomatic wheel being a success. Congress failed to support the League, a disaster for Wilson and the Anglo-French alike, and the commitment to continue the wartime alliance fell by the wayside in subsequent negotiations with both partners. After all those calamities, all Clemenceau had to show for his efforts during the conference was the occupation of the Rhineland, a carrot which his allies had originally urged him to let go of in favour of the other carrots, which eventually were to prove rotten. 
It was his political acumen and perception which helped Clemenceau weather that storm, but it was also a genuine belief in the need to set up some kind of buffer between Germany and France which might protect her in the short term. Fifteen years was not a long time in the lifetime of states, but it could be enough, Clemenceau hoped, to repair the years of damage and destruction which the war had wrought. In that time, France could reassert her continental position by forging agreements with powers to the east of Germany, thereby substituting the old Entente with Russia for agreements with smaller powers that had filled the vacuum caused by the collapse of those three eastern empires. This vision was a reasonable one, but in time it proved to be flawed. A great tragedy for France was of course the inescapable fact that her traumatic 20th century experience was only beginning at the peace conference, and a new kind of trauma would greet the next generation. Clemenceau had done his utmost during the conference to prevent such a trauma, but one could argue that he was virtually powerless to prevent it. France could not have been empowered or bettered had Clemenceau acted differently or engaged in additional concessions, because some of the more regrettable failings of the conference were only made plain in the aftermath. A great example was the policy which Clemenceau's successor in the premiership, Raymond Poincaré, felt forced to engage with in 1923, that being the occupation of the Ruhr in response to Germany's failed reparations repayments. In fact, Clemenceau, will remember, had warned repeatedly that the Allies should stop viewing the Treaty of Versailles as a silver bullet. It was one thing, Clemenceau said, for Germany to sign the treaty, that was all well and good, but it was another thing for her entirely to adhere to this treaty, and the Allies had to be in a position, therefore, to enforce this adherence. That had been a major cause for Allied occupation of the Rhineland, Clemenceau had said, and it also moved him to argue against disarmament in the early 1920s. While strategically sensible, in practice this idea was unsustainable in the long term. France could not possibly maintain parity with Germany's larger population and resulting army. Yet the only way she could ensure that Germany remained true to the Articles of Versailles was through pressure. So unpopular was that treaty in the German country. When French statesmen worked to fulfil this mission and protect their hard-fought peace treaty, they found to their utter disgust and grave concern that they mostly stood alone. The Americans were withdrawn and disinterested, and the only noise the British would make about the treaty was to proclaim how utterly unfair the whole thing was. This latter perspective must have been genuinely troubling for French ministries after Clemenceau's, because once the sheen of post-war triumphant France wore off, old suspicions seemed to return. It was remarkable just how quickly the British went from cooperating with the French to suspecting them of endangering the peace. There was a fundamental misunderstanding in London over what the French were doing in 1923. To the British, it seemed like they were throwing their weight around in a bid to enforce the unfair treaty upon a German people who were downcast and defeated of the poor things. To the French, occupying the Ruhr with their Belgian allies was the only feasible way they could see to remind the Germans of their duty to repay and to protect the peace settlement which only France seemed to be willing to defend. The splintering of the Allied camp within fewer than five years after the treaty had been made was something to behold, and it served only to confirm the fears of French governments which followed Clemenceau's ministry. The unimaginable that Germany could return to challenge France again was a distant nightmare which Clemenceau had warned of, but which he could not possibly have imagined taking the form that it did in 1940. The Tiger would not be present in 1940 to see that calamity take shape, 
but he would certainly have recognised its proponents. The defeatist Marshal Patan, pushed aside by Clemenceau in late 1917 in favour of the more resilient Marshal Foch, would not have struck Clemenceau as a particularly surprising candidate to serve as Vichy France's figurehead. Certainly Vichy France as a concept would have been the antithesis of Clemenceau's character. He would have rallied against it, just as he had rallied for a continuation of the war in 1871 against hopeless odds. When I remember, boomed a triumphant Clemenceau before the Chamber of Deputies in early July 1919, that I entered the National Assembly of Bordeaux in 1871, and have been, I am the last of them, one of the signers of the protests against the annexation of Alsace-Lorraine, it is impossible for me, now peace is certain and our victory is assured, to leave the Tribune without paying homage to those who are the initiators and first workers in the immense task which is being completed at this moment. I wish to speak of Leon Gambetta, of him who, defending the territory under circumstances which rendered victory impossible, never despaired. With him, I voted for the continuation of the war in 1871, and in truth, when I think of what has happened in these 50 years, I ask myself whether the war has not continued. May our thoughts go back to them, and when these terrible iron doors that Germany has closed against us shall be opened, let us say to them, pass in first, you have shown us the way. Invoking the past was an effective way to remind those present of what they had won, particularly when gloom was so present in 1919, as the war wound down and its victims trickled home. Yet invoking the past went both ways. The Franco-German season of killing which we were introduced to in our first episode had only been placed on ice, it had not been conclusively ended. While Clemenceau could indeed declare that we won this round, the victory would soon prove bittersweet. There was not much fun to be had in victory, if that victory could not be enjoyed with one's allies. And yet, beginning in the early 1920s, France's allies seemed rapidly to fall from her side. America's embrace of isolationism remains infamous, but each ally in its own right embraced their own form of that creed. For European states, this centred on preserving and administering their swollen colonial empires, which cost a bomb for Paris and brought only minimal returns. The importance of the empire in terms of the manpower it could bring to bear had moved Clemenceau to acquire guarantees from his allies during the conference that drawing upon the colonies for the defence of France would still be permitted. Use of this manpower bank during the war left the advocates for empire vindicated, and it seemed to confirm the value of the whole colonial enterprise. Unfortunately for France, though, this philosophy had been taken to its bloated extreme with the collapse of the German and Ottoman empires in Africa and the Middle East, respectively, while the Asian appendages also had to be propped up. The capital and investment required for such ventures could have been better expended elsewhere, such as in the army or revitalising the depressed industry and rural life of French citizens. Ill-advised projects like the Maginot Line followed these needless foreign adventures, as did a lesser-known French navy, which actually cost more and had far less utility than the at least somewhat sensible Maginot Line. Instead of the vibrancy and colour which had characterised the French resurgence in the 1870s, French statesmen were effectively crippled by high taxes, a grim diplomatic position and a paralysing fear of a repeat of the recent trauma. No lesser men than Clemenceau anticipated these shortcomings and severe challenges which loomed on the horizon, 
and yet the tiger's political future seemed uncertain too. Persuaded by a friend to put forward a presidential bid, Clemenceau noted that he wished not to win by a small margin, but to be acclaimed for the role, as he had been acclaimed as the father of victory. This did not pan out, and in the midst of a post-war swing towards the right, Clemenceau found that he did not have the stomach to contest a political campaign, which he would have won, but did not wish to risk. In consideration of this, Clemenceau determined to retire from political life once his premiership expired. Handing over his powers in early 1920, he made a final speech to the cabinet, saying, We must show the world the extent of our victory, and we must take up the mentality and habits of a victorious people, which once more takes its place at the head of Europe. But all that will now be placed in jeopardy. It will take less time and less thought to destroy the edifice so patiently and painfully erected than it took to complete it. Poor France, the mistakes have begun already. These mistakes included the momentary alienation of Britain from the side of France, but they would not end there and would come to encapsulate all that was wrong with the French approach. In later years, shortly before his death, Clemenceau reflected on those events and made it plain where he stood on the shortcomings of French foreign policy in the post-war era, saying, I assure you that if I had been in power in 1920, at the time of the occupation of Frankfurt, I would never have accepted the English not being at our side, and they would have finished by coming. But, instead of being open with them, we have tried to show that we could manage without them. To be completely open would have been the only way to combat the hostile policy of Lloyd George. In the face of such an attitude on our part, he would not in the end have been supported by the English people, who have always been loyal to us. Indeed, this final quote serves as something of an apt summary of Clemenceau the statesman, and it also reminds me how wrong my initial impressions of the man truly were. I had always imagined Clemenceau as the look-alike of the Monopoly man, as the serious Frenchman devoid of consideration for other countries and fiercely determined to make Germany pay. In fact, though, Clemenceau was the fluent in English language as... Clemenceau was fluent in English language as much as the culture, a desperate Anglophile moved by a sense of mission to make England and France firm friends. It was a mission which had first animated him during the talks between Russia and France in the late 1880s, and the principle never left his mind. Clemenceau died at the age of 88 in his Parisian home on the 24th of November 1929. If, while attending his enormous funeral, one had taken the occasion to consult the newspapers, the news of the collapse in German finance would have told a grim story indeed. The Wall Street crash, happening the month before Clemenceau's death, was already causing the fragile, post-war economies of the world to unravel. And first on that list were the Germans themselves. Closer to home, André Maginot's ambitious new project had been under construction for a year, in 1928, the French Chamber of Deputies approved of a grant of 1.5 billion francs for his Maginot line. The first steps towards the terrible sequel were already being taken. Okay, history friends, this is the intermission. Head out now and go to the loo or get that popcorn or get that drink you wanted to get, and return in due course when the entertainment will restart. I hope you're enjoying our analysis so far, 
As you can see, it's fairly straightforwardly split in half. We examine Orlando and Clemenceau in the first half of this episode, and we examine Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson in the second half. And that's all well and good. But why not have some music? This song is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on iTunes. Go and review this podcast and let me know that you've enjoyed this project. Let me know because I like hearing and reading about what you say, especially when it's nice. If you didn't like this project, why not tell me why? Did we go into too much detail? Did you get sick of the whole thing? Fair enough. But realistically, did you expect me to do anything less than examine this entire era in the deep, deep dive that, well, I suppose, if not my trademark, then at the very least something I am known to do when confronted with big issues or big debates in history. I can do nothing less than examine them, apparently in an 85-episode monster. But yes, go and review this podcast on iTunes. By the way, I do look at those reviews, no matter what iTunes store they're on. Thanks to you Australian listeners who have put up some great reviews in the past. Those of you listening in New Zealand, why not send out a few more? And those of you in Ireland, why not put out a few more as well? Because the most recent one in Ireland is this one-star review put up by a guy who didn't like the 1916 Rising, but didn't really listen to what I had to say and kind of misunderstood everything I said. So it looks really bad for me, and i love for you to put in a new review so that I look a lot better. So yes, go and review us on iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe everywhere else, and thanks for listening. And now for your song, your break that splits this enormous. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market episode up a little bit. Considering the fact that we're going to be starting something very cool called Poland is not yet lost in September, I thought it was only appropriate to give you a Polish kind of song. This song is called Whirlwinds of Danger, but it goes by many other names as well, such as March Song of the Workers, The Song of Warsaw, Hostile Whirlwinds, or Warsawian. It was written between 1879 and 1883, and it referred to the Polish uprising in January of 1863. 
It was written by a guy, and now this is going to be very embarrassing as I butcher these two Polish people's names, a man by the name of Vaclav Szewczyki, and composed by Józef Plawinski. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to access this song, simply click on the link in the description below. I downloaded it for free, and I assume the copyright is fine, but if I get sued, there you go. It's well worth it. This guy is a real good song, and it'll really get you in the mood for Poland, but it'll also give you a nice break from this marathon episode. So enjoy it, guys, and I'll see you all on the other side. several respects, the British Prime Minister was the more successful of the Big Four, if judged by his record in the conference alone. To begin with, Lloyd George did not suffer disappointment after the Treaty of Versailles had been signed. He was not let down by Congress for his League plan, nor did he feel much anxiety as his allies abandoned him and refused to maintain the wartime alliance, as the French Premiers experienced. Certainly, there was no revolutionary epoch which caused a tidal wave of disaffection to move on a march on London. In fact, the greatest challenge which Lloyd George seemed to face from the conference was the possibility that the treaty may have been too harsh, and that the British public had gone from aggressively vengeful towards Germany in the December 1918 general election to hopeful for a lasting peace and somewhat merciful by the summer of 1919, a period of just six months for the British to completely change their minds, so it seemed. Part of this change, surely, had to do with the British desire to see the Allies get on with it, as the peace conference had never been expected to last so long. So long as the Big Four made noise in Paris and failed to reach a final peace, British and Empire soldiery across the world could not be demobilised, because war was technically still in play. In addition, the preliminary negotiations and draft decisions had made it plain that Britain could well require more, rather than less, men-in-arms, to actually garrison the enormous expansion of her empire. 
Britain had inherited vast tracts of land in Africa and the Middle East from Germany and the Ottoman Empire, respectively. She expected to maintain a sphere of influence in Asia Minor before the Turkish War of Independence put the kibosh on that plan, and the Dominions also gained exponentially. Before the 1931 Statute of Westminster provided for the autonomy of the Dominions, this meant that it was London which gained above all. The process of expansion could best be demonstrated by a quick examination of the world map. Imperial Red was splurged across more areas of the world than ever before, leading to that curious and also mostly forgotten period of British history that after the most destructive and costly war in its history, the British Empire somehow managed to balloon in size to a previously unimaginable extent. It must also be emphasised that without Lloyd George, such gains would never have happened. From the beginning, Lloyd George ensured that the British interests would be upheld. If we can remember all the way back to our first handful of episodes where I examined the Supreme War Council that preceded the establishment of the Peace Conference, hosted in mid to late November 1918, we might recall how doggedly Lloyd George resisted any compromise of the notion that Britannia ruled the waves. Freedom of the seas, according to the American president and his friend at the time, House, was a key part of repairing the post-war world so the nations could live without fear of attack and no nation would be able to exert its influence in that sphere. Unacceptable, said Lloyd George, who never relented on the point and convinced the less experienced negotiator in House that House had somehow won the debate when in fact the matter had only been kicked down the road, where it was eventually to be quietly shelved in Britain's favour. Britain for sure would need its navy to police the sheer vastness of its domains. She would also need an army that was professionally trained, effectively organised and utterly committed to the imperial project. A commonly parroted view is that which claimed the British army learned nothing and forgot everything it had learned during the Great War. In fact, it would be more accurate to say that the British army switched from the old policy of intensive manpower use and costly battles to a dependence upon the cutting edge of technology and mobilisation of new institutions such as the Air Force to fight its battles. Unfortunately, as one historian has noted, Between 1919 and 1932, the British General Staff did assimilate the lessons of the First World War into the Army's written doctrine, but what it failed to do was to impose a common understanding of the doctrine throughout the Army. The lessons were learned, in other words, just not fully learned and applied throughout the vast institutions which composed the British Empire's military arm. What it had learned from the war proved excellently suited for the act of policing. The mobilisation of the empire during the war had roused individual nationalisms in the various colonies and dominions and called into question the notion that London was the centre of such culture and identity, not to mention sensible foreign policy decisions. But that was not all. The war had also dislocated production and industry in certain regions, not to mention the spread of the Spanish flu, which spread, of course, like wildfire through the empire's interconnected theatres. Such misfortune all had consequences, but many historians have begun to look at the empire post-1919, not as the supremely expanded and powerful institution that the world map declared it was, but as an overstretched, vulnerable series of tired states drawn together by little more than British prestige. The net result of this weakness, 
and of the explosion in national sentiment, of course, was revolt across the empire. The sheer weight of the task of British policymakers was considerable indeed. They would be faced not only with the challenge of fundamental national challenges to the British imperial philosophy, such as that mounted by Woodrow Wilson, they would also be required to actually establish new states in the regions they governed, such as Iraq, which was basically just invented. The understudied Egyptian peasant uprising in late spring 1919 proved arguably the most dramatic and destructive of such revolts in Africa, but further afield, for instance in the new Mesopotamia region which the British were seeking to create, serious problems could also be found. So serious and widespread was the discontent of native rulers in Mesopotamia in the early 1920s that British officials on the ground became convinced a conspiracy had been set in motion there by Berlin or the Bolsheviks. It seemed too great a stretch of the imagination, apparently, to suppose that these natives revolted simply because they wished to fly their own flag or rule their own affairs. During the latter half of the war, the British had requested that the Italians and the French recognise the British dominance over the Arabian Peninsula. London's sponsoring of Arabian revolts, facilitated by the famed exploits of one T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, seemed to grant the British carte blanche over the region. Yet it should not be assumed that this was yet another avenue for British imperialism. Arabia, considered some senior officials, was not vital to the British interest because of its oil reserves or geographically central nature to important sea lanes. Instead, Arabia was increasingly viewed as the key to the locked door of India. With Arabia secured, the Indian jewel in the British crown would remain polished and above all secure. There was good reason to doubt this security, as revolts in Bengal in 1919 and challenges to the restoration of the pre-war status quo in India were felt. Something which truly emerges from the picture of Indian nationalism and national protest after 1919 is a trend which is in equal parts fascinating and forgotten. The Indian nationalists moving the cause of Indian sovereignty forward were acting from a cheat sheet drawn up by, they believed, the greatest example of a people to have struggled and succeeded against British imperialism in the recent past, the good old Irish. As Michael Silvestri noted in his 2000 article, which referred to the Bengali nationalists as the Sinn Féin of India, the lessons learned and inspiration drawn by the Indian leaders was considerable. Silvestri wrote, Although the rise of the revolutionary terrorist movement in Bengal preceded the Easter Rising by more than a decade, after the First World War, Ireland became the most important model for physical force nationalists in the province of Bengal. Both Bengali nationalists and British administrators drew comparisons between Irish resistance to the British Empire and contemporary terrorist activity in Bengal. For the former group, the Irish experience provided a heroic model of anti-colonial resistance, as well as what seemed to be a blueprint for national liberation. For the British officers involved in countering terrorism in Bengal, however, the British experience in Ireland offered a wealth of strategies to apply or avoid, as well as a way of understanding the terrorist mentality. This brings us, of course, to the greatest thorn in British home security at the time of the peace conference, and a thorn which would become increasingly sharp and dangerous as the months progressed, the Irish War of Independence. While the conflict truly began to escalate after the summer of 1919, 
and into the autumn where the Irish doll, or parliament, was outlawed in London, rumblings of the discord to come could be felt well before that. Thanks in addition to active Irish Republican diplomacy during the preceding months, including Eamon de Valera's adventure to the United States in spring 1919 where he raised no less than $5.5 million, it was impossible for the British to ignore what was going on in Ireland. Sean T. O'Kelly was selected as the envoy of the Irish Republic to be sent to the peace conference and it was hoped that with some successful petitioning of the American president in particular, the interests of nationalist Ireland would be respected. Above all, what the fledgling Republican government wanted was to secure recognition from the international community of Ireland's independence from Britain. Surely, these people considered, it would be impossible to ignore Ireland's justifiable grounds for self-determination, a principle espoused by Wilson many times in writing and in speech. Indeed, the Irish experience of being let down by Wilson was to prove arguably the most naked instance of Wilson putting aside his principles in the name of maintaining the relationship with his allies. Wilson managed to paint this as only temporary. The League, Wilson maintained, would fix whatever problems Ireland or China or Italy or anyone else might have. In addition, though, Wilson traded his principles for realpolitik, a hardly surprising exchange, but one which seriously rankled with the idealists in his own camp, as well as those he let down. Yet Wilson was far from the only national leader to be viewed as inadequate when it came to dealing with Ireland. Few were as criticised as David Lloyd George himself when it came to devising precisely what kind of policy should be implemented in Ireland. By the time a truce was arranged in July 1921, the Prime Minister's inconsistent and in many respects unsuccessful policy in Ireland counted as strikes against his premiership, which would soon be exploited by his political rivals. Negotiating with de Valera is like trying to pick up mercury with a fork, Lloyd George reportedly fumed after a preliminary meeting with the Irish figure in mid-July, to which, when informed of the comment, de Valera reportedly replied, Why doesn't he use a spoon? Infamously for the future development of Ireland, Emin de Valera remained behind back in Dublin during the truly important peace talks which ended the Anglo-Irish War between October and December 1921, a decision which later enabled him to oppose the Anglo-Irish Treaty which ended the War of Independence and eventually fight against the pro-treaty Irish party in the subsequent civil war. Britain was spared such a civil war thanks to Lloyd George's efforts to wrest unanimity from his cabinet, a feat which was as impressive as it was costly. Lloyd George led the way during the negotiations and was determined to give as little ground as possible to the Irish. Compared to the peace conference, the Prime Minister likely anticipated that these negotiations with the Irish rabble would have been a walk in the park, but politically, and interestingly, they actually cost him a great deal more. The decision to relinquish the southern portion of Ireland to a free state, essentially a dominion of the British Empire, was not a popular one among the more staunch Conservatives who made up Lloyd George's supposed coalition. The 1920 Government of Ireland Act had had the effect of reimagining Northern Ireland as a government distinct from that in Dublin, administered from Stormont but still under the nominal control of London. This spelled out clearly how red Lloyd George's red lines were when it came to negotiating in late 1921. He could hardly have gone against an Act of Parliament during his talks with the Irish rebels, for that would have toppled his leadership. 
Instead, a solution which was in fact far worse than that originally advocated by the Home Rule Party of the 19th century was all that the Irish rebels could manage in the end. For more on that, check out my series on the 1916 Rising. For all of these Irish issues, though, it was not Empire but his pro-Greek sentiments that actually ended up toppling Lloyd George's premiership in the end. Proceeding gingerly into the rough seas of post-war Europe, Lloyd George remained acutely sensitive to any sign of declining British prestige. The French had continued to combat the Turks in Cilicia, that Anatolian province which hugs the Mediterranean, and the British had dipped in and out of supporting the Greek faction, but confusion had reigned and the interest of the British public was particularly low. By the end of 1921, all powers save Greece and Britain had actually made a peace with the Turks, and the Treaty of Sevres from the August of 1920 had effectively been rendered a dead letter. By September 1922, the resurgent Turkish government's forces had clashed with its Greek foe for the final time, effectively defeating them in the long-running War of Independence, which had so animated Turkey under its enigmatic military leader, Mustafa Kemal, later to be called Ataturk. The only obstacle left to declaring a completely free Turkish republic was that strange state of affairs which was maintained over the Dardanelles Straits. It was this thin sea channel, the cause of so many confrontations and of so much anxious policy in the 18th and 19th centuries, which provided yet another spark now. According to the terms of the obsolete Treaty of Sevres, the Straits region, including Constantinople, was meant to be neutral, kept open to all demilitarised traffic, and preserved as such thanks to British naval might. By 1922, the British maintained that they held the region in trust until conflict was brought to an end. But to the Turks, it simply appeared as though Britain was occupying its land and preventing Turkey from realising its destiny. Cautiously, despite warnings from the British resident in the city, Kemal's forces inched towards Constantinople, and by October 1922, it was plain that confrontation between these Turks and the British was on the horizon. At this point, wrote the contemporary Maldon W. Graham for the Southwestern Political Science Quarterly in 1922, an unfortunate move was made on behalf of the British government by the Prime Minister, in a request to the self-governing dominions for assistance in the defence of the Straits. The problem, Graham continues, was that this request was communicated without a previous consultation of the other Allied governments, and it came like a bolt from the blue, as a direct challenge to Kamal, as well as to the other Allied governments. Not content with merely increasing her naval forces in the Straits, Great Britain, by a single-handed action at a critical moment, alienated her allies, who forthwith withdrew their contingents from the southern side of the Straits, leaving the British alone in possession of Chanak and Izmid. This precipitate action, while demonstrating to the world at large the solidarity of the British Empire in support of England's position, also revealed a marked disapproval of the action of the government by all classes in England. Essentially, the Prime Minister had acted without warning, without due consideration of the circumstances and without consultation of his old wartime allies, the French and Italians, who had long since bowed out of the Turkish theatre. But what was Lloyd George's justification for suddenly rearing up and threatening war with Turkey and inviting all his dominions to take part? In the recent years, Britain had maintained neutrality in the conflict between the Greeks and Turks, 
and while an armistice kept the Great War at bay, she had only been minimally involved and had done little to help Greece. This, don't forget, was the same David Lloyd George who had so earnestly welcomed Venizelos, the Greek premier, into his confidence and who had bonded with him over the dream of a greater Greek empire. With the Irish pushed aside, perhaps Lloyd George was finally able to devote sufficient attention to that pet project in 1922, and once he saw that it was effectively dead, he drew on the preponderance of power which he knew the British forces in the area possessed. The Irish had been brought to the table, but then again so had the Germans, Austrians, Hungarians and Bulgarians. Nobody had escaped their peace treaty sentencing, except for this formerly Ottoman Empire. Now, with fewer current distractions, Lloyd George may well have felt that the time was right to act, but in doing so, he fatally miscalculated. Indeed, even Mrs. Lloyd George was astute enough to see the policy of war with Turkey as a grave mistake, as she recalled in her memoirs. One morning on September 15th, my door opened and Lloyd George and Churchill walked in from the cabinet room. Lloyd George asked me to take down from Churchill the text of what I realised was to be a statement asking the Dominion governments for their support in the event of war with Turkey. I was horrified at the unwisdom of the message, conveying as it did the prospect of a renewed warfare on a grand scale. Lloyd George and Churchill took the draft into the cabinet room, where the meeting was in process. Shall I send Lloyd George in a note warning him against such an action? I thought. But then again, I thought. He will never agree to such a telegram being sent. The next thing I knew was that the telegram had gone. It was one of the factors which helped to bring the coalition government to an end, and within a fortnight it had fallen. In fact, it wasn't until the 19th of October 1922 that the Conservatives voted 187 to 87 against renewing the coalition with Lloyd George's Liberals, and Lloyd George resigned as Prime Minister that very same day. By that point, in October 1922, British politics was moving in a new direction, and James Ramsay MacDonald surged ahead to form the major opposition party, with the Liberals divided and in third place, and the Labour Party taking the Liberal Party's old position. This process was teased out in the general elections of November 1922, December 1923, and October 1924, which saw the Conservatives and Labour Party trade places in government and exchange seats. The disruptive impact of the war on British politics, and the enfranchisement of the working class, not to mention the removal of Ireland from the equation of British general elections, all of this told a story of a changing Britain. Above all, it was a Britain which no longer had its dogged war leader David Lloyd George at its helm. But Lloyd George did not simply ride off into the political sunset. By 1929 he was leading a reunited Liberal Party and he held the deciding vote when a hung parliament ensured that neither the Conservatives nor Labour held enough seats for a majority. The thumping Conservative victories in the 1931 and 35 general elections sidelined Lloyd George somewhat and by the time it was decided to create another wartime coalition cabinet, Lloyd George had become significant for another reason, his consistent sympathy for Germany. This was by far the most unfortunate characteristic which he developed, and it is especially strange because it was born out of his belief that the peace treaty which he had helped to create was unfair. The arguments of John Maynard Keynes certainly helped persuade him, but Lloyd George had not listened to these same arguments 
when Keynes had made them to him in person throughout May and early June of 1919. Instead, as we have seen, he took the destructive and divisive step of absorbing the objections of his empire peers and then expressing these during the meetings of the Council of Four in the first week of June, to the utter disgust and chagrin of Woodrow Wilson and George Clemenceau. We've talked before about Lloyd George's series of epiphanies, which, genuine or not, caused absolute mayhem in the Allied councils. Granted, by the 16th of June, the Allied response was unanimous in the belief that the Germans should not be given all they were asking for, but the previous fortnight of deliberations shook Clemenceau and convinced him of the Prime Minister's perfidy. Woodrow Wilson similarly took the somewhat lacklustre view that while the treaty wasn't perfect, it was too late to change it now. It bears repeating that the Big Four were certainly equipped to make changes. The question is whether these changes would have been enough to satiate Germany, and whether anything other than a peace without victory could have satisfied the German people. Though he was in no position to launch into a barrage of criticism of his fellow peacemaker, Lloyd George did release his own account of his experiences of the peace conference, that ironically titled book, The Truth About the Peace Treaties, which contained very little in the way of truth, and much in the way of self-congratulation and excuses for his less successful policies. In addition to his proclamations to have acted consistently and with the common good in mind, ignoring the chaos which his about face caused in early June, Lloyd George seems to have believed that despite the rocky experience, it was friendship and not resentment which was left in the end among the big three. Lloyd George wrote in 1938 that When the conference was drawing to a close, Clemenceau asked me in his abrupt manner, How do you like Wilson? I replied, I like him, and I like him very much better now than I did at the beginning. So do I, said the tiger. No three men, cooped together for so many months discussing momentous issues, bristling with controversial points, ever got on better or more agreeably together than did Clemenceau, Wilson, and myself. To quote Monsieur Tardieu in his book, The Truth About the Treaty, Despite divergences of opinion, the personal relations between the three men during these 40 days have never ceased to be sincere, calm and affectionate. May their fellow countrymen never forget it. I gladly endorse this testimony to the good feeling, goodwill and, towards the end, the really affectionate relations that existed between the three men who took the leading part in deciding the lines upon which the Versailles Treaty should be framed. When I criticise Wilson... It will be with genuine personal regret. It will be attributable to my personal resolve to write a truthful narrative as to events and persons without reference to my own personal inclinations. This extract in Lloyd George's book was written to introduce the section of his memoirs which lobbed several attacks in Wilson's direction. What becomes clear from the source material of even Wilson's closest contemporaries though is that as the conference came to an end, it was not just his counterparts in other countries looking to score political points that rounded on the president, but also former friends like Edward House. Looking back retrospectively on what had been accomplished, but also what had been lost, House was of the opinion that the president might well have succeeded to a far greater extent had he not determined to get down in the muck, so to speak, with the other leaders. In his diary entry for the 29th of June 1919, House wrote, It may be that Wilson might have had the power and influence if he had remained in Washington and kept clear of the conference. 
When he stepped from his lofty pedestal and wrangled with representatives of other states upon equal terms, he became as common clay. I wonder what motives actuated Clemenceau when he receded from his first position and chose to welcome the president into the arena where the debates concerning peace were to proceed day by day. I doubt whether he saw that its effect would be to lessen Wilson's commanding influence and bring it nearer a level with that of Lloyd George and his own. It is more likely that Clemenceau was content to accept my assurance that the president would readily acquiesce in having him preside over the conference and that it may be considered that France would fare better if Wilson could sit in conference and obtain an intimate knowledge of France's claims against the central powers. The issue was that whereas Clemenceau, Lloyd George and Orlando were heads of their respective governments, Woodrow Wilson was the head of state of the American Republic. To meet his counterparts would have been impossible, or at least improbable, because it would have meant meeting the French president, the British king or the king of Italy. By reducing himself, so to speak, to the level of these men of lower rank, Wilson appeared to some to be reducing the prestige of his very office, an unspeakable sin. Wilson's apologists had claimed in the beginning that Wilson had only acted as such because only the president could possibly have wrangled the necessary concessions for creating the new world order that the post-war world needed. Wilson couldn't, in other words, have trusted that another man would have done justice to his vision. He barely trusted men enough to bring them as his subordinates, as his selection of the five-man American delegation showed. Yet this claim that only Wilson was capable of delivering Wilson's vision lost a great deal of its shine once the reality began to dawn on all that the president had had to compromise on. By May 1919, it seemed, Wilson had become used to compromising on one principle in pursuit of holding the conference together and slapping on the bandage of the League of Nations on the wound as a kind of promise that everything would work out in the future. These wounds included an abandoned Ireland, a disappointed Italy, a despondent China, and many other quests besides. The claims to self-determination, a principle which Wilson had always found difficult to define, proved unsupportable when faced with the cold hard facts on the ground and the interests of the United States. Was it better to alienate Britain in the name of winning Ireland the republic she craved? What would have been better for American interests, to have appeased four million poor Irishmen, or to keep the largest empire in the world on side? The answer in strategic realpolitik terms was obvious, but the problem was that Wilson presented himself as the paragon of virtue, as the spokesperson or figurehead of this new way of doing things, while still deferring to the pure politics of power in the end. Worse, when it was plain that Wilson had abandoned those hopeful peoples who had petitioned him so often and so eagerly for aid and support, the president had tried to claim that he had not done this. The only tacit admission of failure on his part came from the equally weak supposition that everything would be fine for these abandoned Irish parties, these depressed Italians or these despondent Chinese, because the League of Nations would solve their problems for them. All the while, Wilson did not imagine that the worst-case scenario would be borne out and that he would fail to take America into that organisation. The image which history has handed down to us of Britain and France propping up the League of Nations in the face of an increasingly hostile world was akin to surrogate parents reluctantly raising a child which, in many respects, they did not even want. The baby had been Wilson's, but it had been torn away from him, rightly or wrongly, because 
to American lawmakers, politicians and citizens, the bridge from old to new policy was simply a bridge too far. Critics of this creeping isolationism in American sentiment and policy must bear in mind the seesaw of emotion which had rocked the United States since the turn of the century. We have learned that Wilson felt compelled in spring 1917 to bring the United States into the war, and that while he signed on the dotted line, he remained a hater of war to his dying day. A person who relished the challenge of conflict did not seek to reimagine international affairs with the erection of a League of Peaceful Nations, after all. Wilson simply did not do enough, though, to ensure the success of his vision, because he relied too extensively on the notion that the world was fundamentally ready for it, that it thirsted for it, that it needed it, and that, like a messianic image of biblical times, this vision would arrive to save the world from itself. He was not afraid of failing to bring America into the League, but he was concerned that the great hopes which had been attributed to him would not be fulfilled, what he called a tragedy of disappointment. The burden of expectation on his ability to change the world, to change human nature, was simply too great. Rather than make any effort to temper these expectations, though, Wilson rode in an open-topped car through the capitals of Berlin, France and Italy, proclaiming the fulfilment of all wishes and safety for all. It was thoroughly irresponsible, but it was also understandable if we consider the view that the world would surely never again willingly subject itself to such an apocalyptic slaughter as that which had been experienced in the 1914-18 war. While his contemporaries landed their blows, some of the most wounding critiques of Wilson's approach to peacemaking were inflicted by historians in the years since. Their works have played a leading role in how we view the president, and to put it bluntly, the extent to which we blame him for what went down in the peace conference. There has been some debate on whether Wilson, as a president, was a hit or miss, wrote the historian David A. Andelman, adding, Certainly, the document which he took home with him from Paris was profoundly flawed in almost every respect. It failed to embrace any of the elevating moral vision that he had brought over with him. In his efforts to win acceptance by the allies of his beloved League of Nations, he compromised at virtually every turn with respect to the world he and his fellow peacemakers were creating. Then, after returning to Washington with this perverted vision, he compounded the felony with a categorical refusal to entertain a single amendment or reservation to the treaty from the Republican-controlled Senate. Indeed, the President's failure was double-sided, in that not only was the final treaty quite unlike that which he had apparently promised to the Germans in the initial peace overtures of October 1918, but in his efforts to get this new treaty approved back home, the ratification process ultimately failed as well. Wilson found that the initial apprehension which had been aroused in Republicans during his first stopover in late February to early March 1919 had been exacerbated. Wilson responded to these concerns not by listening or heeding some advice, since it was too late to change the treaty now anyway. Instead, he dug his heels in and refused to backtrack. Again, it bears repeating that just as surely as Lloyd George, when negotiating with Irish rebels, could not violate an act of parliament and hand Northern Ireland to Michael Collins, so too could Wilson not exactly violate the actual terms of the Treaty of Versailles, which all parties had signed, by adding on new bits to it. Still though, notwithstanding the extent to which Wilson's hands were tied at this late stage, it bears repeating that, as Andelman noted, it was difficult to find barely a gesture to the 14 points 
in the Treaty of Versailles that Germany was forced to sign on the 28th of June. Wilson, of course, would have profoundly disagreed with this perspective and would have argued that it was the Germans rather than he who had misunderstood. We examined in the past the question of whether there had been some element of miscommunication when Wilson had talked with the Germans and where these hopes had originally been raised. The different conceptions of what mercy actually meant in the circumstances, as we discovered, tells quite a story. Whereas Wilson interpreted mercy to mean a just degree of punishment, according to the crime, the Germans interpreted it as a declaration of the American mission to prevent any penalties being inscribed in the final German peace. Rightly or wrongly, both parties then blundered onwards. Of course, I think it should be noted that the Germans were not surprised wholly due to these mistranslations. We will return to this question of the Germans in the next episode, but it deserves asking, if the Germans were expectant of leniency, should Wilson have complied and given them leniency, adjusting his views as Lloyd George did? What is interesting about this question is the apparent double standards. Consider this. Lloyd George is criticised for changing his views so late in the game in the first week of June, whereas Wilson is criticised for not changing his. Had Wilson determined to back Lloyd George's moves or to alter certain parts of the treaty in the discussions of the first week of June, would the President be viewed more positively now or more negatively? In my view, the first week of June was too late to be having such epiphanies. Wilson confessed that very issue, and it was why he felt Lloyd George's epiphanies to be less than genuine and more of the opportunistic variety. What the peace conference really needed wasn't Wilson to support Lloyd George's moves for an adjustment of the treaty, but for Wilson to have come prepared in the first place, for him to possess an understanding of European politics, and for him to realise that his vision could not be realised without a serious degree of give and take. We need only consider Wilson's confession post-conference that European diplomacy works always in the dense thicket of ancient feuds, Rooted, entangled and entwined, it is difficult to see the path. It is not always possible to see the light of day. I did not realise at all until the peace conference. I did not realise how deep the roots were. For a man like the American president not to realise the style, the antagonisms, the bitterness, the ambitions of European diplomacy seems absolutely bonkers to us. Yet to Wilson, that style of diplomacy, that attitude of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, regardless of what wounds these scratches inflict, it was obsolete, so it didn't bear considering. Having proclaimed the beginning of a new order in diplomacy where open covenants openly arrived at would carry the day, it did not seem to occur to Wilson that even while he had moved on, his counterparts had not. Wilson was not the only one to make this cardinal error. House had made it during the Supreme War Council meetings of November 1918, where he assumed a measure of give and take must exist where he gave way, only to discover but never to admit that he had given up freedom of the seas to Lloyd George for no gain. It took Wilson far too long to reach outside of his ideological bubble and realise just how ingrained the old ways of diplomacy were. Had the President had his way, we could be talking about how the peace conference fixed the world's problems, and paved the way for a century of peace. But the President's vision of what the peace conference would look like proved wildly inaccurate because he had made the catastrophic assumption that his counterparts in the British, French and Italian premiers were as equally eager as he was to redefine what negotiation actually meant. 
In actual fact, of course, these premiers lauded the notion of a league to protect their hard-won gains in the war, to protect against a German resurgence, and generally make everything safer, but at no point did one of those three leaders ever believe that the old way of doing business had fundamentally changed. If they said as much, then they were lying to draw Wilson in. It must be said, then, that as much as Wilson failed to apply some sense of realism to his approach, the European allies were also guilty of a supreme deception which is rarely properly appreciated. Wilson, to them, was in many respects a useful idiot, a man who could be manipulated and his ego stroked to get what they really wanted. And what they, what the European powers wanted, was a continuation of the old ways. Any observer with only a vague knowledge of what had come before could see that. The British wanted to expand their empire, the French to continue the cycle of antagonism by pushing the Germans down and occupying their territory. The Italians wanted to expand their writ into neighbouring regions. When asking for these ends, these political figures made use of terms which Wilson recognised, such as self-determination, security and occasionally reparation. In reality though, it was a pure smash and grab, and in return for that smash and grab, the European premiers were only too happy to sign off on an organisation that would guarantee these grabs into the future. It was, ironically enough, the President's own countrymen who had the greatest issue with his league idea, the league he had sacrificed so much for. That these sacrifices proved to be in vain meant that Wilson actually emerged from the peace conference having achieved nothing, save the empowering of the old imperial forces which had helped cause the war in the first place. But when Wilson left the conference on the evening of the 28th of June, all these failures could not have been foreseen, at least not by him. House recalled the moment when the President moved off from this lively city which had housed such critically important figures for the last half year, writing, We went to the station to see the President and his party off. There was a large crowd of notables, including nearly every prominent man in Paris, other than the British delegation, which was notably absent. I compared it to the last leave-taking, very much to the credit of this one. There was more enthusiasm, there were more people, and the whole affair was more brilliant and successful. This is probably the last time House would use those adjectives, brilliant and successful, to describe the President. The mood was good probably because he was finally leaving, as much as because he believed the mission at home would be successful. From the beginning, of course, Wilson faced an uphill battle. During the summer of 1919, the decisions and policies of the American delegation were effectively placed on trial. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee, headed by Wilson's nemesis Henry Cabot Lodge, picked and prodded the recently gained Treaty of Versailles, and Wilson psyched himself up for what amounted to a treaty tour, where the President sought to wrest public support for terms he had already fought so hard for. The Germans would prove a better audience than these apprehensive Americans. Since the failure to separate the League from the Treaty of Versailles, Wilson found that opposition greeted him everywhere he went, and as the reality of the uphill battle made itself felt, he felt his health deteriorate like it had not done since the stresses of early April plagued him in Paris. Collapsing in Colorado in late September, he suffered a debilitating stroke shortly thereafter, which effectively removed him from the treaty fight campaign. Shorn of its greatest advocate, the treaty seemed doomed, and this doom would be confirmed the following spring in 1920. While the old world did its best to imagine how they could apply a limited version of Wilson's vision, 
the president was forced to come to terms with the full extent of his failure. His beloved homeland, it seemed, was not as prepared for the new order as Europe itself. Or perhaps those European leaders had done a better job presenting their vision to the electorate and political opposition. Either way, the failure would be borne out. America would swap the Treaty of Versailles the blandly titled Treaty Concerning the Re-Establishment of Peace Between Germany and the United States, and this treaty would not be signed until November 1921. By the time it was ratified, the League of Nations was over a year and a half old, and it was plain that America, at least for the immediate future, would not be part of it. Woodrow Wilson was the first of the Big Four to die, succumbing to the complications of his earlier stroke on the 3rd of February 1924, at the age of 67. That statistic also gives Wilson the distinction of being the youngest among his Big Four peers to die. Lloyd George lived to 82, Vittorio Orlando to 92, and Clemenceau to 88. When he took up office at the age of 56, Wilson had seemed in ideal health. That his health later deteriorated to such a terrible degree has moved historians the world over, as we have seen before, to attempt to reach a conclusive answer as to what exactly happened to him in that decade of time. The stresses of office were considerable, but surely there has to be another explanation. Perhaps there is, but perhaps Wilson was just one of a long line of casualties inflicted by America's highest office. Perhaps the demanding task of spending six long, action-packed, exhausting months face-to-face with the most powerful men in the world was enough for any individual, and perhaps the fear that all that work might have been for naught drove him over the edge. We may never know the real reason for Wilson's deteriorating health, just as surely as we will never know any of the Big Four as intimately as their political colleagues, significant others, or good friends knew them. We'll never know what it meant to meet them in a crowded corridor, to speak to them in a busy meeting, or to dine with them in brief intervals between one gathering and the next. We'll never know what truly went on in the head of Vittorio Orlando, George Clemenceau, David Lloyd George, or Woodrow Wilson. All that we do know is that these men tried their utmost, notwithstanding their flaws, dishonesties, ambitions, and numerous other shortcomings, to make a lasting peace. The one thing, perhaps the most assured thing, is that the Big Four had in common the desire to avoid a second war, predicted to be more devastating than the first. These human beings, having laboured during wartime to protect what they held dear, could not imagine that mankind would put itself through such traumas ever again. This lack of imagination in many respects was their major failure. They believed what they wanted to about their counterparts until it was too late to change their minds. They imagined that treaties would be honoured, that people would be honest, and that a new day was dawning, that people could really change. These imaginings, these beliefs, would prove to be disappointed, and the hard-fought victory with all its triumphs would prove bitterly hollow in the end. After all their efforts, after the dramatic and grand spectacle which had seen German delegates sign on the dotted line, the Big Four felt confident to exit the stage. Unfortunately for them, the terrible drama of the 20th century was only just beginning. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.